Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Really excited today to be joined by Francis Moore LaPay and Anna LaPay. Before we get to their formal introduction, our usual Banyan related announcements. <clears throat> Although we have people joining us from everywhere in the world for these broadcasts, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Vancouver is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books and Sound just completed its 50th anniversary year in 2021. That's 50 years as Canada's spiritual and healing resource. We've been local and independent since 1970. Every time you make a purchase from Banyan Books, you support all kinds of wonderful programming like today's event. You can visit us at banyan.com, that's B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, or you can come in in person seven days a week at the corner of Kits- uh, 4th and Dunbar in Kitsilano. Our guests today. Today, Francis Moore LaPay and Anna LaPay are with Banyan Books in conversation about the revised and updated 50th anniversary edition of the now classic Diet for a Small Planet. In 1971, Diet for a Small Planet revolutionized the meaning of our food choices. It broke new ground, revealing how our everyday acts are a form of power to create health for ourselves and our planet. The book sold more than 3 million copies and sparked a food revolution now in this revised and updated 50th anniversary edition, LaPay goes even deeper, sharing her personal story and showing us how plant-centered eating can help restore our damaged ecology, address the climate crisis, and move us toward real democracy. Francis Moore LaPay is the author or co-author of 20 books about world hunger, living democracy, and the environment beginning with Diet for a Small Planet in 1971. She has been featured on the Today Show, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, the CBC, and BBC, among many others. Francis, or Frankie, is the co-founder of three organizations, including the Oakland-based think tank Food First and the Small Planet Institute, which she leads with her daughter, Anna. The pair also co-founded the Small Planet Fund, which channels resources to democratic social movements worldwide. Anna LaPay is a national best-selling author, a respected advocate for food justice and sustainability, and an advisor to funders investing in food system transformation. She is also the founder and co-director of Real Food Media. Anna's work has been translated internationally and featured in the likes of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Oprah Magazine. She was named one of Time Magazine's Eco Who's Who and is a recipient of the James Beard Leadership Award. Anna is the author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It. She is co-author of two books, and a contributing author to 13 books. 
She played a primary role in the release of this 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet, editing and compiling the entire recipe section. Her website where you can learn more about all of her work and projects is annalapay.com. To learn more about both Francis and Anna's work, please visit smallplanet.org or dietforasmallplanet.org. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for Francis Moore and Anna LaPay. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yes. Now, there's, there's really a lot we can talk about here. This book has been around now for 50 years, and it, and it was a, a groundbreaker at the time. If we can, I'd like to just dive right into it. Francis, at the opening of this new edition, you, you start with a really big, bold statement. You say, I began this journey with the realization that growing and eating plant-centered diets was a great choice. Today, it is a no-contest necessity. Either we now make a big turn or life on earth as we know it is gone forever. You even say that this blunt declaration, you call it a blunt declaration, even rocks you. So I'm wondering, can you tell us in your view why this is not an alarmist statement, but a, a, a fact that we need to acknowledge? Yes. Um, just hearing my own words shakes me up um, because it is so true that our use of the earth to grow food so destructively and wastefully is contributing to the climate crisis, to species death, decimation, to ill health and early death unnecessarily. It is not sustainable. <laughs> it is an essential step now that we take this move. And I'd love to call it plant and planet-centered diet because that is really what is at stake now. I'll just give one fact to throw this out to give you an idea of what I mean. We use 80% of our agricultural land, including grazing land, of course, to produce livestock, but they only return to us 18% of our calories. So think of all of that plowing and all of the chemicals that are used in many parts of the world and all of that destruction of rainforest, et cetera, to produce such a small relative return. That is just not workable for this planet and it's not good for us and our health. Thanks, Francis. And, and maybe you want to weigh in a bit on that as well and add, Anna. Yes. Well, I, you know, agree with what <laughs> my mom said, would echo it. And to me, as an observer of my mother's work, uh, and as you described, a participant in it as well, you know, one of the things that has always struck me about my mother's core message that she has been trying to share with the world since 1971, right, since this, the original of this book first came out, is a fundamental reorientation to how we think about food, that it isn't only something that we do as individuals. Of course, you and I, when we eat, it is the most, one of the most intimate things we do, but that food is also an expression of our collective values. It's an expression of our uh, uh, community-wide choices. And what she has always said is what we see around the world, this really destructive way of using our land, uh, a way of organizing a food system that shuts so many people out. So there is, as we know, needless hunger around the world, that she has always made this point that uh, the very presence of hunger 
in a world that produces enough calories for every man, woman, and child on the planet is an expression of fundamentally the lack of democracy that so many of us experience in our daily lives. So one of her uh, oft quoted messages is that hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food, it's caused by a scarcity of democracy. And that core message, that kind of understanding that food is, again, both so personal and yet so political, uh, was you know a core message in 1971 when Diet for a Small Planet first came out. And here we are 50 years later, and it feels like that core message is as relevant as ever. Thank you. Frankie, what's changed in the last 50 years? Uh, where are we at? Are, do you think we're on a, a positive trajectory? Have things been getting worse? Is it neutral? What, overall, what would, your, what would your take be? Well, both and. Definitely, we've been moving in two directions at once. On the negative, we can say that, yes, um, you know, the destruction of rainforest, including the key Amazon rainforest, much of that is still to produce beef that is so wasteful and harmful to us. Um, our diet, we can say that we are the first species in which our diet is actually killing us. You know, what's up with that? Uh, in that... Um, Diet is related that um, one in five deaths in the world now is diet related and most non-communicable disease death are linked to our diet. So there's, there is uh, so much uh, more destruction of our health um, in the earth. At the same time, what gets me up in the morning is what I talk about in the new opening chapter Around the world, people are awakening to their own power. Land movements of just, for example, we, we cite uh, since 2000, 8 million new local on the land cooperative groups are feeding themselves and nurturing the earth all over the world. Uh, a great UK ex expert on this put all those numbers together for us. And Anna and I, in the year um, 2000, we had the privilege of going together to Brazil and meet the landless workers movement there. Then they've grown so much since then. But this is landless people who are managing to, to this in a country with highly concentrated control of land. They are moving more and more land into the hands of small farmers committed to ecological agriculture and uh, <laughs> developing new approaches that work for them and the earth and uh, restoring their own dignity, their own power. And so, uh, and that's happening in, and I could go on and on in Africa too, where, you know, we were worried of always about famine when I started. Famine and Africa were always sort of in one sentence. And yet in um, Niger, the country that had suffered from so much hunger when I began, now is a leader in what's called agroforestry, the, the planting of crops interspersed with trees that are allowed to grow. And that's a whole approach that now building on ancient traditions is spreading. So there's just so much positive that is keeping me going. <laughs> and I love how Anna just tied it right back to the question of power. And our food relates us every day to our own power and how we can disperse power and make both political and economic power accountable to us and our real values and interests and all of life.
Wonderful. Thank you. Now, I understand in the U.S., maybe Anna, you can comment on this and then and then Frankie can jump in. In the U.S., there's there's an important issue that's that's been in the news last week around voting rights. Can you fill us in on what's happening there? Sure. And and I know I know you, mom, <laughs> want to weigh in, too. I mean, what I, I for those of you outside of the U.S. who might be following what's happening here, those those of you listening from here in the United States, you know that one of our huge struggles has been fundamentally protecting our rights to vote, our rights to fair representation and uh, making voting easy and simple. Uh, you know, it's it's always striking to me when I uh, every presidential election go out to help register people to vote, how hard it is to stay registered, be registered, particularly for people who are transient, for people who might not have, you know, a fixed address and these fundamental ways in which uh, our laws have made uh, being registered to vote and voting difficult, let alone the fact that, you know, voting in the United States is not a holiday, (laughs) Uh, that uh, there's all kinds of ways in which we are challenged. And so there's been a movement that my mom and many others, many of our colleagues have been involved in to try to really unite folks across issues from the environmental justice folks to food justice folks and across all these different issues to say, fundamentally, one of the things that we need to do in order to see any progress on anything we care about is protect our democracy and protect our rights when it comes to expressing ourselves. So there was a a really important piece of legislation in the U.S. that would have uh, created a lot of these kinds of protections. And unfortunately, it hit a roadblock in D.C., but the, you know, the battle continues uh, and mom, do you want to take it from there and talk about kind of where you see this movement heading next, maybe? Yes. And I I, I call it now democracy, the taproot problem, <laughs> because what can grow unless we have accountable democracy? And what is so exciting to me is I so love the way Anne summarized the, the crisis, but there is a growing truly a democracy movement across labor and environment and people joining together and realizing they can't really succeed on any of these important agendas without democracy. And so we've co-created a website just called democracymovement.us. And it's a map of the U.S. So wherever you are, you can you can jump in and weigh in. It's not giving up your special passion, but it is saying as a citizen, you can you can be heard. So I kind of walk on the food and farming foot and the democracy foot and, and really encouraging others to, to always see that democracy is the taproot, that we have to make that healthy in order for all of our other necessities to emerge. That's great. Thank you both. And I see our, our amazing producer, Jacob Steele, he's just put up the website to Democracy Movement. Oh, Those who are, who are watching or listening to the recording, you can go to www.democracymovement.us. Um, one of the things that you two have founded together is the Small Planet Institute. I'm wondering if you can give us, our audience, a bit of an understanding about how that was founded, the story behind it, and, and the work that you do. Sure, I can start if you want. Yeah, start. Yeah. yeah well, the the real origin story uh, of of Small Planet Institute ties back to Diet for a Small Planet as well. So, 
you know, go in our way back machine about two decades ago. And uh, we were, my mother and I were exploring those original insights from Diet for a Small Planet as we were coming upon the 30th anniversary of the book. And I said to my mom and my brother, who's a journalist also, we had we sat my mom down and had this conversation with her. I think it was at a, a dark bar in New York City over a couple exactly. of beers. <laughs> but we said, we said, mom, you know, again, this core insight that you have about food and democracy, it really begs the question, if what you are arguing is that uh, 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 extending power across folks in a community about really building strong democracy as core to addressing our food issues. You know, where in the world are there examples of communities, of city governments, of social movements that are doing that work? And where can we find, in a sense, the hope of, of and the possibilities and the inspiration and the models that we can share uh, with others? And so we kind of provoked her with that question and encouraged her to explore it in the form of a, of a book. And she asked me to be her, I think we started out as research assistant and ultimately she promoted <laughs> me to her co-author, but I am the first to say getting a promotion by your mother is not that impressive. <laughs> but we, we ended up writing a book together that uh, we, we called Hope's Edge. As one of my friends said, it sounds like a, a, a daytime soap opera title, but we didn't mean Hope. title, by the way. I think I love the yeah. title. We didn't mean hope like the person we meant hope the feeling hope's edge that we were seeking these places that were at that edge of hope right that were both up against some of the world's biggest challenges but also really digging in and, and trying to develop models and solutions and we traveled to india bangladesh kenya poland france brazil each chapter is a story of our journey and a story of a place or a movement or a city government really getting at the roots of hunger and bringing democracy to life and out of that book then emerged an institute that uh, over the years, really, my mother has continued to do this work of, of asking those questions and, and telling the stories from around the world of where we are seeing those models at work. And can I just say, I often tell people the biggest lesson, Anna, we came home and we said, wait a minute, these people felt like the most hopeful people on earth, and yet they were facing the biggest obstacles. How do we understand that? And of course, the answer was, they were in action together. They were in action together. And that is where hope arises. And so hope is, is yeah, you can't separate it. If you're in action, you feel the possibility of change. And that's all that really counts, some sense of possibility. So I often call myself not an optimist, but a possibilist. And that's all we need. Fantastic. You know, the, the Small Planet Institute, I was exploring your website and I was drawn over to the uh, Fast Facts page. And there's, it said this, search over 1,700 often surprising info bites covering food, hunger, farming, inequality, living democracy, and more. And there was one fact that really stood out to me, and I, I hope you could both comment on it. The fact was this. Consumers pay $7.5 trillion each year for industrial, industrially produced food, but between a third and half of this production is wasted along the way to the consumer or at the table, spoiled in the field or in transport, rejected from grocers because of blemishes, or left on the plate because of over-serving. Can you comment on this wastage and then maybe we can look at some of the solutions you're seeing for how to handle it? 
Go for it, Anna. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, that I, every time I hear that statistic, I, I, I get shocked all over again that we waste. Uh, and when I say we, I mean the globe. And I don't mean like blaming you as an individual listening. I mean, the collective, we waste so much food. And a lot of those reasons, again, it's not because you left your leftovers in the back of your refrigerator too long, although yes, that happens, but it has to do with uh, supply chains and it has to do with economic choices that grocery retailers are making or purchasers of, of farm products are making, or it has to do with the fact that in a lot of parts of the world, there aren't good systems for storage. And so food gets wasted before it can reach a market. Uh, and to us, the fact that we waste that much food itself is a signal, a sign that this is a system that doesn't work for us as consumers. And it certainly doesn't work for the food producers either, for the farmers or the ranchers who are getting shut out of the system. And to us, it's a sign that there is so much abundance. I mean, I think that's one of the, for me, one of my mother's core lessons has been her fundamental orientation toward abundance and toward understanding that if we, instead of trying to attack nature with chemicals and uh, uh, synthetic fertilizers, let nature thrive through its own in intelligence, that nature is inherently abundant. That if we uh, empower people to be able to uh, uh, come together in community and to come up with their solutions, there is incredible wisdom, that, that wisdom is abundant, and that so much of our uh, industrialized chemical, corporate, agricultural systems are oriented fundamentally toward a very different framework and one of scarcity and kind of scaring, scaring us about kind of imminent scarcity and therefore we need more production. And actually that statistic about wasted should be, if nothing else, the biggest signal that there is enough out there in the world if we were to fundamentally try to design systems that work for people and planet, not just designing systems that are uh, working the best for, uh, for companies and for corporate profit. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so to me, that statistic, again, it's one of those, those uh, figures that rocks me to my core, and it is a signal of so much hope and possibility. Mm -hmm. and, and I would add to that, that we enlarge our view of waste, <laughs> that figure is disturbing, very disturbing. And the other part of the waste is that our corporate ultra-processed food system means that 60% of the calories that we consume have virtually no nutrition in them. And so that we have such deprivation built into our diet by the taking out of the key nutrients. And in that, I would also add that I learned fairly recently, and I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know this before, uh, on terms of, you know, the eating, if waste is eating that which is <laughs> not nourishing, uh, that um, the World Health Organization in 2015 deemed uh, uh, beef to be, red meat to be a probable carcinogen, and processed meat to be a carcinogen. So, um, in, you know, if you look at the big picture, if you think of uh, waste <laughs> that we're actually um, just, you know, not using properly and then adding to that the, the, you know, the nutrients lost in the process and the harm done by the food that we do eat, uh, we see that 
there is a much, much healthier way to be with the earth that is abundant, as Anna was saying. Yeah, and just a coda to that, one piece I forgot to add in that, of course, is a, is a through line in Diet for a Small Planet is that in the U.S., and I, and I don't know for the Canadian population what the figure is, but in the United States, the average American is eating twice as much protein as their bodies need. <laughs> and for any nutritionist listening, uh, you would know that overconsumption of protein is a way, a kind of form of food waste in that your body can't store more protein than it can use. And so overconsuming protein is itself a form of kind of waste if you want to think of it that way, because uh, you are not able, again, to store it and use it in the future as protein. So again, it's a way of rethinking how we are framing our choices individually and collectively about what food we're growing and why and, and who benefits from it. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and Frankie, I wanted to ask you about the protein myth. And, and, you know, I think when people are considering a vegetarian diet, myself included, when I first years ago started considering it, they, we were so conditioned to think, well, what about protein? Mm -hmm. Where does that, where is that coming from? What, what are the roots of that belief that we, we have to eat meat in order to get the protein that we need? And what is the truth about it? Well, that was such a dominant myth when I began. And I, I heard people say, friends say to me that, Frankie, your book helped create peace in my family because my family really thought that I was going to die from protein malnutrition if I didn't eat meat. So I think our, our understanding has evolved. There was this idea then, the scientists were telling us that there was a certain balance of amino acids that we could, you know, the highest quality. And that was in the animal kingdom, so to speak. And now we know, as Anna said, we eat twice the protein that our bodies can use is protein, so we can let go of that concern. And that if we eat healthy diets, if we eat a variety of whole foods, so we get the fiber too, that we are inevitably going to get enough protein. And in the back of Diet for Small Planet, we have a nifty little chart. If you don't believe the generalizations, you can go look at the numbers and see you know, how, how it all adds up. And we can just uh, relax. And so I keep trying to pull back from that idea of complementary proteins that I learned about from the scientists way back when. And I thought it was kind of cool that you could be a kind of chemist in the kitchen and combine these, but it's even cooler that we don't have to worry about it. We do not have to worry about it. Yeah. We and one enough. of the great things about this book is that if you're, you know, if it's, if this is a new thing to you, having a, a plant or planet centered diet, then there's all these amazing recipes. And Anna, maybe you can tell us a bit. I know you updated all the recipes for this edition. Can you tell us a bit about that process? Sure, I'd love to. And I'd love to give a shout out to uh, a fabulous uh, nutritionist and cookbook author, Wendy Lopez, and her website is Food Heaven Made Easy. And uh, I want to give her a shout out because she worked with me on all of the recipe refresh. So I am... Uh, 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 not a cookbook author, but I like to cook from cookbooks. <laughs> uh, but so she helped really uh, do the refresh with me, uh, and while I, you know, tested them out on my family, and 
we took what were the recipes in the original. So for those of you who know the original, you know half of the book was the kind of political message of my mother's was talking about this, uh, the ability to uh, get a nutritious diet from plant-centered eating. And then half of it was a how-to, it was recipes. And so we looked at those recipes and we refreshed them for the 21st century. So that meant doing things like taking out all of the margarine and all of the low-fat dairy products. Uh, And it also meant taking out all the references, as my mother was saying, to complementary proteins and really re-emphasizing that you do not need to worry so much about where, how you will get the protein needs of, uh, uh, for your, your body through this way of eating. The other thing we did that was really meaningful for us and a joy for me was we brought in the voices in a way of, chefs and cookbook authors who I see as embodying, emblematic of a movement of uh, leading chefs and cookbook authors who are innovating at the edges of plant-centered eating and that we wanted to offer them a place to contribute a recipe into the new diet. So we have uh, a fabulous Native American chef, uh, uh, Sean Sherman, who contributed a recipe. We invited the authors of the fabulous book, Decolonize Your Diet, to contribute a kind of Mesoamerican recipe, Padma Lakshmi, uh, who's a a fabulous cookbook author and celebrity chef contributed a delicious Indian curry. So the book to me feels a little bit like trying to give a sense of a kind of party of voices uh, that also feels like a reflection of you asked what has changed in the last 50 years. I mean, I think the number of people who understand the power of our food choices to connect us to the planet and to each other and to cultures around the world, like that is such a a shift in the past 50 years and something we wanted this book to celebrate. Thank you. I think what Anna said really reminds us too in these terrific chefs that contributed out of their traditions recipes reminds us that (laughs) this plant-centered eating is at the heart of diets developed all over the world that we can now enjoy. And this grain-fed, meat-centered processed diet is a very recent and very backward way, you know. So I loved that Anna took that initiative and so that we can celebrate this, this history as well as we enjoy the recipes. What about the, I'm sure you're familiar with the paleo diet. This seems to be a really popular thing these days. People sort of claim, well, back in caveman times, hum- humans were eating meat all the time. That's what we ate. What, what is your response to that? Well, I'm not an expert, but I do know the truth of everything that we've been saying. It, it really annoys me because women, actually, we were hunter-gatherers, right? <laughs> and the women did the gathering. And yes, when the, the hunter would go out and kill the, you know, whatever, and bring it back, everybody in the village had some. It was all shared, is my understanding, most of the time. But it was the women who were providing the daily nutrition through the gathering. So that's about all I can say. I'm not at all an expert on it. I do know that what Anna and I are talking about is very aligned with what our bodies need. And if I could just jump in to say one thing, because the word diet is part of the title, always has been. <laughs> and yet often I think when people hear, I know personally, when I hear diet, it sometimes 
in my mind, kind of triggers a fad or it's about, um, often about weight loss, uh, or, you know, it has maybe associations with some of you listening <laughs> that we don't, that we don't mean. Uh, and, and certainly when my mother used the term 50 years ago, again, it was not meant to be a kind of fad that you try this out, you know, like a new outfit and then you, you, you know, you buy the next outfit next season. Uh, and it certainly wasn't about, uh, trying to kind of look a certain way or about weight loss, that it was really kind of more of like a mental mindset and a, a worldview of a, a exploration of a worldview that is about shifting how you see the world. Again, not for this season and you kind of change it next season, but really an orientation toward one's life. And that to me has been over the years, the most moving thing about being my mother's daughter is how many people have said to me, your, your mother's book changed my life. And it's been striking. They don't say, you know, just your mother's book changed the way I eat. They say your mother's book changed my life because it was, it is a call to all of us to think about how can we live meaningful lives? What does that look like? And how do we want to orientate everything, including our most daily act of eating toward, uh, um, toward a life that feels meaningful to each of us? Thank you. Thank you. On that, maybe we should have called it eating for a small planet. <laughs> I, I, the shift in mental map is a key in all these decades of learning and that we were trapped in this frame of scarcity and we humans believing is seeing rather than seeing is believing. We, if, we, if we look through the scarcity lens, that's what we see. And what this book represents then is, wait a minute, we can shift from this worldview of limits to a worldview of alignment. As we align with the earth, there's more than enough for all of us. And understanding that everything is connected as well. I have a dear German friend who once said to me, Frankie, in biological systems, there are no parts. They're only participants. And that's the spirit of this book, that we're all participants and every choice we make and don't make is changing life around us. So food, this eating for a small planet is a source of power. Thank you. I just want to remind our live audience that uh, uh, Frankie and Anna will be taking your questions in about 10 minutes. So please, I see we've got them already rolling in. Go ahead and type your questions into the Q&A tab on Zoom and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Frankie, uh, you say that at the heart of democracy are the rules and norms for living together that meet our deepest needs bringing forth the best in our species while keeping our destructive capacities in check. Can you outline for us these, the three intangibles that you mentioned as our deepest needs that are beyond food and our other physical essentials? Oh, I love that question. Yes. Um, I believe that there are at least three beyond the physical. And they are our need for connection with others. We are social animals. Our need for meaning in our lives. It's not just enough for us just to you know, be alive. We have to have meaning in it. And that we have a sense of agency, of power, that we can make a difference. And the beauty of the food, the food awakening that Anna and I enjoy is that 
as we make our daily food choices give us power, meaning, and connection, those three essential needs, that it strengthens us in other arenas of life as well. And I then go on, of course, to say that the only way those needs can be met, power, meaning, and connection, is through democracy, understood, I call it living democracy. Democracy, not just about voting once, you know, once in a while, but a way of life where everybody can feel heard and that everybody's needs for power, meaning, and connection are met. So that's the way it all weaves together for me. Wonderful. Do you have any comments on that, Anna? Yeah, I guess as you were talking, Mom, I was thinking I, I wouldn't want anybody to think that we are um, blasé about our ability to, to make these choices, as we call them choices. Uh, for many of us, actually, we don't have those real choices in uh, in our communities. And so I think about uh, one of the, the issues that I work a lot on with colleagues, both in the U.S. and around the world, is uh, to try to take on the chemical companies that are pushing pesticides in agriculture and pesticides, many of which we know to be uh, neurotoxins or endocrine disruptors or, you know, carcinogens, I mean, very not not good for us chemicals that are being used on a lot of farmland in the U.S. and Canada around the world. And, and for many of us, say you didn't want to contribute to that system, that you didn't want to have potentially the food you are buying for your family to have been grown by chemicals that might have impacted the families of those farm workers who picked that lettuce for your salad or uh, the community that lived next to the apple orchard where those chemicals were sprayed. Say you wanted to make that choice. For many of us, we at the moment do not have that choice in our grocery stores. And so again, this ties back to to what my mother and I talk about is this unifying the conversation about food with democracy, that uh, when, when we have that feeling of the, the contradiction between what we want to have choice for and what is available to us, that we hope that ignites in us a, a sort of a passion to advocate for change, to say, you know, it should be a fundamental human right that every one of us should be able to walk into the grocery store and fi find food produced without the pesticides that may have made someone else or their family sick, that that should be a basic right of citizenship. And if we are not, if we don't have that right, that is something that we can speak up for and advocate for. Right, and I want to encourage my fellow Americans that we do not have to tolerate this influence uh, by the largest agribusiness, millions of dollars a year, lobbying and trying to persuade and changing rules in the favor of exactly the problem that Anna was describing. And so that's where democracy comes in, mm -hmm. because that's not democracy, that's plutocracy, that's the influence of private interests over the public good. So that's why it all fits together that to meet those needs for power, for meaning and connection in our lives, democracy, this living a journey that we're on together to create rules that are really good for us and our, our uh, voices get heard, that is democracy. Can we talk a bit about corporate lobbying and its impact on, on democracy? Maybe Frankie well, can comment first. Yeah, and Anna too. She, um, you know, I think about uh, Anna's father, the late Mark LePay, a brilliant and a very thoughtful uh, scientist. And he, in 1998, wrote the book Against the Grain, 
who tried, he was the first out of the gate, I think, right, Anna, you know, really uh, explaining the hazards of glyphosate that was embedded in the genetically modified organism seed takeover in our country of feed crops in particular. And, um, and yet, was that heard? But it wasn't heard because when, <laughs> when he tried to first get it published, Monsanto, corporate power, sort of intimidated publisher, and Mark had to go to a much smaller publisher named Common Courage Press. I love that. I love the name that it, it embodied what he was about. But just this, the, the silencing of critics and truth tellers about the dangers um, means that we still, as Anna was describing, the, something like, um, I think it's worldwide, right, Anna, that 44% of farmers are poisoned every year uh, by pesticides. And it's that influence of corporations like Monsanto. Now they're having to, you know, they've paid billions in, in harm, but they're still, Bayer Monsanto it's called now, but are still, you know, very, very profitable. They've had to pay billions because of the cancer that has uh, ruined the lives of farmers. So that is what we mean by, by corporate influence that does not set the rules in a way that protects us. Yeah, I mean, I... Do we have time, Ross? I could give an example. Do, or do, Yeah. Please. So I'll be, I'll be quick, but just to add on to give a, a good, for me, a, a clear example of where we see this influence and, and a bit about how you push back against it. So, uh, you know, we were, we're talking about, for instance, the impact of pesticides on our health. And one of the most notorious pesticides that was uh, used in homes and in agriculture is called chlorpyrifos. And it's an insecticide that was banned for home use because there is no known safe level for children of using this insecticide. It was banned many years ago for home use in the US, but it was still being used on farmland. And activists and scientists were building the case with the Environmental Protection Agency to say this this is this doesn't make any sense to keep using this insecticide on farmland because of its human health hazards. And the EPA, based on its own science, was on the brink of passing a national ban of this pesticide when uh, the Trump administration came into power. The biggest maker of chlorpyrifos, Dow Chemical, gave a significant amount of money to both his campaign and to the Republican National Convention. And lo and behold, once uh, the new administration came into power, the EPA reversed its plan and uh, chlorpyrifos stayed on the market. And what we saw around the country were advocates continuing then to work at the state level. And I worked with a number of groups on the Hawaiian Islands where there's a huge amount of uh, chemical pesticide usage. And they organized and they've been for years trying to build political power. And because of all of that organizing that they were able to pass in the state of Hawaii, the first ban on chlorpyrifos, which then ended up going across the states. And uh, we were really excited to see that uh, just in the la just recently that the US government has uh, said that they will ban chlorpyrifos. So it's an example of, of how companies can influence politics. Uh, the fact that there are more agribusiness lobbyists on Capitol Hill than oil and gas lobbyists uh, is you know, a clear sign that that lobbying happens. And the story of chlorpyrifos is a story that uh, you know, the power of the resilience of advocates and to the need to keep fighting even when you experience setbacks and that, uh, that, that this is the kind of you know, long-term resilient organizing that we need.
Thank you both. Thank you so much. So uh, there's a really nice question here from Priscilla and everyone in the audience, please keep your questions rolling in. Priscilla asks, do you see a role for ethically sourced animal products in our diet? For example, community-based fisheries. Oh, maybe uh, uh, Frankie, you'd like to go first and then Anna. I'll start, yeah. I mean, I've never been an absolutist at all. You know, what my focus is, is on the overweening, you know, damage done by the dominant corporate chemical food system. And I think there are ways, you know, people have different values, different opportunities, is sensitive to the impacts. I think there are ways, uh, certainly, if you choose to, to, you know, in eat animal foods um, um, that are you know are are sustainable. So I you know I'll let Anna speak to that too. But yeah. I've never been an absolutist. Yeah, well, and I love. I think it was Priscilla that you you asked specifically about community managed fisheries because one of the um, great models I've seen is uh, some community communities that we do some work with in uh, Kauai, the Hawaiian island of Kauai, uh, has um, created an area of community-managed fisheries and off the north uh, east coast of the island. And what they are seeing is, this goes back to our message about abundance. Like when you have a community-managed fisheries, they're seeing incredible abundance of aquatic life come back. And that there is a way to work Again, in concert with nature, if you are not overfishing, if you are allowing those uh, those populations to thrive, and to me, hearing about the success of this work in Kauai and of other community-managed fisheries that I've learned about is a great example of, again, when you are working with nature and understanding its limits, but also understanding its, again, inherent orientation toward abundance, that... If, if your choice is to, you know, again, consume, uh, consume those products, there is a way to do it, I think, in ways that really reflect these um, shared values around protecting ecosystems. Thank you. There's a question from Helen. Helen asks, what is the most important food slash democracy takeaway I can share with my son who is starting college in the fall? Frankie? Oh, wow. Well, since democracy in question, we, that means to me that our voices are heard and that, and that our well-being is respected by those we elect. So I, it's so uh, individual in a way and yet it's so universal. And I think that if my children were starting college, I would just encourage them to have that frame and whatever class they're in, whatever course they're taking, how does it relate to who's making the decisions about this? And um, how can we make that more fair, more accountable? Um, and I, it's, it's a frame, if you will, it's a way of seeing. And we've, I, unfortunately here in the US, so much the idea, well, democracy is just you know, maybe voting, but you don't even have to do that. Although I have friends who are pushing, uh, excited about the idea of universal voting where everyone votes. But the point is that really in, imbuing and sharing with your, anyone you can influence, especially your children, <laughs> yeah, that idea that, that whatever you're interested in, a lot depends on who are the folks making the rules 
And are they serving the goals that you want to in that arena or not? And then speaking out and taking part in a movement that will make our governance accountable to ourselves and our future. So I think, yeah, any course that you take, ask those questions about power. That power is not a dirty word. You know, power comes from the Latin, to be able. This is our capacity to act. And what enables that? Yeah, and I would just add real quick, uh, one of the things that brings me so much joy is meeting college students and finding out all of the amazing things that college students are doing on their campuses. So two shout outs to uh, one, an organization called Real Food Generation. So you can see if your child is going to a college where there is a chapter of this movement on their campus, or they could start one that's doing a lot of work around school food on campuses and other really exciting work. And then another youth-led organization called Herbicide Free Campus that is working to transform the landscaping on college campuses to get toxic herbicides off of college campuses and, and transform lawns into prairies and to bring all kinds of really cool uh, biodiversity onto campuses. So, uh, you know, maybe your uh, child will be going to a school that already has herbicide-free campus, or they might get excited to bring it to their college. And I was just at Indiana University where they had this large and beautiful school farm garden sort of operation going. They took me out and fed me right out of the field. And I think that too can enrich um, what, um, you know, that constant feeling of relatedness to the earth as you, as a student, approach whatever topic. So if your school doesn't have one of those, then that's something else you might consider getting involved in. So great. Thank you. And for those here live, Jacob just shared a couple of links. Uh, www.realfoodgen.org and uh, herbicidefreecampus.org. He shared those two links. Thanks a lot, Jacob. There's a question here from John. John says, I'm a big fan of and have been much influenced by Aid as Obstacle, which oh I just God. gifted to my 25-year-old daughter who is coming. <laughs> oh <laughs> he just gifted it to his 25-year-old daughter who is coming into exploring these themes. My question, says John, how much is the pattern of aid, quote unquote, being largely promotional of U.S. corporate interests rather than a focus on help, still the dominant pattern? Have we seen much change? Well, I haven't done specific research on that. I'm just so touched that that book of so long ago is, is uh, reaching people today. But we still do get that frame uh, of the aid frame. I just saw something recently with the framing of how can we feed the world, right? No, 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 no. The world can feed itself if we get out of the way. Um, so I think that this message of our book, Aid is Obstacle, co-authored with Joseph Collins, David Kinley, um, that, that it was really attempt to reframe that and that foreign aid that enables uh, corporations to come in and divert in this direction of dependency on external inputs, seeds, and chemicals, that is not useful. And um, so I think the issue is still the same, shift out of the frame of how do we feed them and move to the frame of how do we remove the obstacles so that people can, can feed themselves. And that means limiting the kinds of land grabs that are going on today. Um, uh, my colleague, Tim Weiss, wrote the book, um, 
eating tomorrow. And, and that's a good introduction to a lot of these issues for, that unfortunately still were enabling uh, foreign, you know, outside corporations to come in and grab land and, uh, and influence policies around the world to become dependent on purchased herbicides and um, uh, pesticides. So that's really the, still the, the message that's very much alive for me with that book, Aid as Obstacle. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. And there's some nice thank yous. I'll just read out one or two of the thank yous coming in from people. There's one from Ricardo who says, I want to thank you for changing my life. I was already a vegetarian when I read the original Diet for a Small Planet, but reading that book gave me an actual reason to not eat meat. Being a vegetarian back then was really weird in many people's eyes, and I was always asked why. And, and now I could say, if we in our country stopped eating meat, there would be enough food for every man, woman, and child on earth. Now it's easier to be a vegetarian than it was then. Thanks to you both, Ricardo. And then there's one from Kate who says, so grateful for you, your mission and passion and the gift that you both are to us and our planet. Thank you. I've been eating plant-based since I was 11. And I remember when someone gifted me your book and the support it gave me being the only plant-based eater I knew and the daughter of a butcher. I have raised <laughs> my kids eating plant-based and my butcher father changed the way he eats when mad cow disease happened. I am so grateful for your books, wisdom, and strong, purposeful voice. So much gratitude to you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for those wonderful sentiments, Ricardo and Kate. There's a question here from Charlene. Charlene or Charlene? In what ways might we as listeners support and contribute to the work you are doing? Anna, you want to take it? Yeah. I mean, I, I love the question and all of those, those notes of gratitude were so moving to hear. Uh, what's, I mean, I guess how I would answer that question is that it's so specific to who you are and, and where you are and where you can lean in. And one of the things that gives me such energy in this work is that uh, how we can make a difference is so multifaceted that there's so many ways, uh, again, depending on your own talents and interests and where you are. Uh, one of the things that I would say that we all can do is uh, to you've all probably heard the expression, vote with your fork. You know, you're hearing us talk about the power of our eating, but we also vote with our vote, that there are ways that we can think about how do we elect people to represent us who care about these food issues, who understand their importance, who understand that if we want to have, for instance, really good climate policy, we also need to be talking about revolutionizing how we are growing food. The fact that the industrial food system is contributing about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions, you know, should be its own wake up call. So one of the things that we can do is think about what's happening on policy locally uh, or with our elected officials to get food at the forefront of their policymaking here in the state of California. We've really seen that happen and we've seen a huge change. So a group called California Climate and Agriculture Network has been organizing to get elected officials to understand that agriculture policy is climate policy. And we've seen now, uh, we have are in this position in California with uh, 
a really strong budget this year. And we've seen the governor here putting tens of millions of dollars into uh, helping farmers transition to more resilient farming practices. Uh, looks like the state of California will increase the per student rate for school food so that school food can be purchased with better alignment with ecological values. All of that came from organizing that everyday people did to make sure elected officials understood people cared about this so that when those advocates not on those doors, those elected officials understood that their constituents cared and that their constituents would be proud of them for stepping up in that way. So, you know, again, a long, broad answer, uh, but more specific answer, I would say, you know, to, um, to really think about what it is, even baby steps in your own life around your food choices that can align with these values. Yes, I think we all are Educators, we all are changing people around us every day. Every everything that we're doing on this, that somebody's watching and saying, "Oh, maybe I could." So I love Anna's answer, and I know wherever we are, there are people gathering to address exactly what we're talking about today and finding them. And if any way we can be helpful to help you connect with that, and uh, we would be happy to. And we also use volunteer help to do research and uh, work at Small Planet. So I, all of that. That's great. So the best place then for people to reach out to you would be through the Small Planet website, smallplanet.org. And Anna, why don't you... Um, yeah, and people can also find us at uh, realfoodmedia.org. There's resources there. And uh, my mother is also on Twitter, which is very 21st century of her, at, <laughs> at F-M-L-A-P-P-E. And I'm on Twitter also. And we tend to use Twitter to share out resources and book recommendations and uh, some of those facts and figures you're referencing. And so that's a good place to find us as well. Excellent, excellent. Just want to take a moment to thank all the, the people here in the live audience. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for being here and joining us live. You being present with us uh, just makes these live events so much better. So thank you. And a big shout out to Jacob Steele, who is our Banyan's events curator and podcast producer extraordinaire for everything he does. And to Colin Limworth, the owner of Banyan Books, who's uh, kept it local and independent, supported the community for so many years. Uh, thank God the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree in this. Uh, Francis Moore LaPay, Frankie, and Anna LaPay, it's been a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's such a joy for me. The questions were wonderful, the questions from our audience. And Anna, it's just so much fun to work with you always. Thank you so much. <laughs>